Were you like on crew? That's terrible. Wow. That's I think that's. I mean, there are all these studies that say teenagers should really sleep till ten and shouldn't start school till like eleven. That's our school's like defense of that. What happened to the afternoons for sports? Homework, right? Because if you start at 10, then you have to end at like... 6? Yeah. Wouldn't you prefer that? Then you're still doing sports in the dark. That's why they invented lights. Yeah. All right. In New Hampshire, we don't have the money for lights. How many people do you, I guess they do, do you know, in my experience, I've got older. I appreciate sleep more resonant. I hate yeah. sleep. Well, I feel like it's like kind of like... Like when you're like five, you, the last thing you want to do is go to bed, but then you get to high school and you, I don't know. Yeah. And now I'm still in the phase where it's like. When I was younger, I had very, very strict bedtimes so that started off at lunch. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> okay then. Um, so I think, remember that we have, <laughs> those of you who are here, I'm wondering if I should do this thing where I give you an answer, if you swear not to give it to anyone who's not here, for um, Wednesday. <laughs> oh, everyone, oh sure, why not? We did that in film, right? Did I do that in film? I did it in some class last semester. I think it was film. Maybe you weren't there. Uh-huh. What? I was usually you are usually always there. That's such an interesting formulation. <laughs> usually always. Yeah. That's kind of like what we were talking about on Thursday about utility of not taking the thing that has the most utility, right? How's that for a segue? So it's um, the utility of taking the thing that is less valuable rather than more valuable. Gabby, guess what I'm going to ask you to do? Close the door. <laughs> Is that a language class? Is that why they're speaking so animatedly? Babin! <laughs> now I'm going to teach in Italian. Quando? All right, no, I won't. Dreams where I've walked into classes and they're speaking in different languages. Okay, so uh, if you write, don't tell anyone, because if anyone here writes this on top of their, anyone not here writes this on top of their um, test on Wednesday, then no one will get credit for it. So if you tell, so this is, a, it's a little game theory thing. If you tell anyone, then you will lose the possible credit that you would otherwise get if it is only the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of you. So uh, the nine of you. Okay. Should we tell her? Yeah? All right. So I'm giving a word right now that if you write it on top of your midterm on Wednesday, you'll get extra credit as long as no one, as long as you tell no one not in this room. Because if anyone not in this room writes the word on top of their midterm on Wednesday, then no one will get credit for it. Okay? So not only will you be harming yourself through your kindness to others, but the kindness will do nothing for them. And it will do bad things to the people in the room. Although you could argue that if I'm grading on a curve, that would do something nice for the people not here. But don't make that argument. It'll just be extra credit. Okay, the word is rutabaga. R-U-T-A-B-A-G-A. 
R-U-T-A-B-A-G-A. Rutabaga. Do you know what it is? It's a, it, no, it's, it's veggies. It's a combo. Okay. Hi. All right. So, and now I can't spell it again. All right. Let us look at Smith. What did you guys think of the Adam Smith? Where is, where is my copy? Which you all printed out, right? <clears throat> On the effect of utility? So what is the effect of utility? All right, I'll just say this is from Smith's book, as I mentioned before, called Theory of Moral Sentiments. And what Smith is interested in, as, as you know what he's interested in from the Wealth of Nations, is basically how markets work. And he's the founder, in a sense, both the synthesizer but also the founder the founding synthesizer of ideas that you're getting in people like Hobbes and Hume. Smith was a disciple of Hume. I don't know if you read Hume's essay of money, but it's certainly worth reading. And it's partly worth reading as a kind of counter or the kind of other side of what James Buchan was quoting lots of Scottish Enlightenment people on the disaster that discovering gold in Spain, um, that, that Spain's discovery of gold and Spain's raping of the New World for its wealth, how destructive that was to Spain's economy. So Smith is making something or looking at something of the other side of that. That is, he's not an imperialist. I'm not Smith, I'm sorry, Hume. He's not an imperialist. He's not a person who is for the exploitation of labor. He's just very interested in the incentive that something worthless like gold can have towards the increase of pro productivity. So Hume is really good at seeing that gold by itself is only interesting because people want it. And then it's only interesting as an incentive. And the question then is, why doesn't it just cancel itself out? In other words, one of the ideas, do people know how inflation works? What the, what the standard theory, it's a false theory, but it's not entirely false. What the standard theory of what's wrong with inflation is? Andrea? Basically, like, if there's a set amount of money, and so I, like, a dollar is worth a dollar, and then there starts being printing more money, and there's an excess of money, each dollar is worth a little bit less. Yeah. And how come? How come? Why is each dollar worth less? Because it's, like, if there's a big pie, and there's, like, 10 slices, and then you add 11 slices, each slice is worth Yeah. So that is, if you say that the, and you have to figure out what money is to really say this, and here, very tricky things having to do with velocity of money come in and instruments that are the equivalent of money, like IOUs and checks and so on. But if you say that money in some sense represents the commodities that it can buy, that is that if you go back to Gill Gilligan's Island, 
all the money that <coughs> Thurston Howell III, that is the Jim Backus character, has, all the money that he has won't buy him more than what's available to um, purchase on the island. If people want his money, the most that he can buy is what's available for purchase. And beyond that, his money does him no good. So if the money in some sense represents the commodities that it can buy, this is a little bit what, this is somewhat similar to what Marx is saying. It's in the same ballpark as what Marx is saying. If the money represents what it can buy, if excess of money can't buy anything else, then either some stuff that looks like money won't be money, Confederate money, for example, which you can buy very cheaply or used to be able to buy very cheaply before it became a collector's item, either some of the money won't be money or if it's all money, then people will just charge more. So if there is... If there are 10 slices of pie, this is, this is slightly altering what you're saying, but if there are 10 slices of pie in a closed economy in which there are, there are tickets that enable you to get pie, and there are only 10 slices and there are 10 tickets, then each ticket will be worth one slice of pie. But if there are 100 tickets in this closed economy and 10 slices of pie, then either only a certain number of tickets will work, that is, once the pie is sold out, the rest of the tickets are worthless, or you can charge 10 tickets for, the slice of pie, for, for a single slice of pie, and then each, slice, then each ticket is worth something, but worth only a tenth as much as it would be worth if you only had 10 tickets for the 10 slices of pie. Does that make sense to people? So uh, the idea then is that inflation simply means that you are representing the same number of purchasable or the same value of purchasable commodities with a larger number of symbols for the, those commodities. So if prices go up, it just means that there's more money around than there used to be, but not more commodities around than there used to be. And so if prices go up, it just means that you're still taking the same percentage of the amount of money that's available in an economy for the commodities that are, that are available to be sold in the commodity. If you just think about playing Monopoly, do you guys play Monopoly? Yeah? So property is really cheap in Monopoly. And, but the problem is that you know, if you could buy property at, at, at Monopoly prices, you would all be real estate speculators for sure. But, you know, you put up a hotel for $1,000, that's amazing. What's Steve Wynn pay, and how many people did he have to bribe to put up a casino? I mean, it's tens of millions, right? But you can put up a hotel on Boardwalk for $1,000. That's amazing. What a great deal. Except that passing go only gets you $200. That is, that Monopoly is... The, the amounts of money that you have to play with in Monopoly are small, and therefore the property is still expensive given, and putting up a hotel is expensive given how much money you have to work with. So basically inflation occurs when the relationship between the amount of money you have to work with and the things that money can buy changes and the things that that money, the, the things don't go up as fast as the money goes up, and therefore the money, you need more money to buy those things when you're competing with other people for those things. Okay, make sense to people? It's like 
that's why raises hardly ever matter because everyone's getting raises and because everyone is getting raises most of the raises are eaten up by inflation not entirely but on average and that's why people say that in fact for the lowest um, 90% or 80% of Americans real wages haven't gone up in um, 30 or 40 years people are still making despite the fact that they're nominally making a lot more money their real salaries are the same people the same age are making the same amount of money that people that age were making 40 years ago so that's a very very basic idea of how inflation works it doesn't actually work that way but that's a first approximation a second approximation is what Hume gives you which is that when there's more money available does anyone remember what Hume says, those of you who were like studying for the quiz, even though I didn't really mention Hume as going to be on it, but you still wanted to do the reading, of course, because that's what you're like? And you had that extra hour. Well, no, no, you were anxious about getting up early so you couldn't fall asleep, so you read, right? Good. In fact, that's kind of what Hume is describing. So there's part of what happens with inflation... Have you actually studied it, or this is what you picked up? Kind of picked up. Yeah. I'm not an major, I'm a business major. So. Yeah, but still, businesses have to deal with inflation, too. Yeah. Okay. But there are econ majors in the class, right? So. You want some models on, of inflation? Tomorrow night. Um, do you use calculus in your models? Because you should. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, there, it, there is an idea of calculus there. So it, partial derivatives, it's fine. So there's a lag time. So one thing that happens with inflation is that there's more money around, but people don't raise the prices of good, goods quickly enough. So that increases demand. And when demand is increased, what happens? What's one response to the increase of demand? Production increases. So, in fact, the Federal, Federal Reserve has a mandate to keep inflation going and to keep inflation going at somewhere between 2 and 4% a year. Without inflation, economies don't do as well as they do with inflation. And there are two reasons for that. One is that if you don't have inflation, then there's no reason for people to spend money that they have because the money that they have is going to keep its value. Whereas if money loses value, then you have to do something with it to protect its value. So money itself has a kind of notional value, sometimes called real dollars. Um, have you ever seen charts which say increase in price or increase in, pr in wages or whatever in constant dollars or in real dollars? So the idea of a constant dollar is you take a dollar worth some, at what a dollar is worth at some particular date. And what you then do is you say, okay, the U.S. produced in constant dollars in 1980, the U.S. economy produced X trillion dollars of goods, and in 2019, it's producing 1.5 X trillion dollars of goods in constant dollars. If you looked at nominal values, if you looked at what the U.S. produced in 1980 in terms of the actual dollar value that people were calculating then, it would be tiny compared to the actual do dollar value of what people are calculating now. 
but if you look at constant dollars, you can get a better picture because what constant dollars means is what the value of a dollar is once you take inflation into account. So there's this idea, there is no such thing as a constant dollar. It doesn't exist. It's, but what you do is you take a particular date and you decide what the dollar is worth on that date. How do you decide what a dollar is worth, though? The number of goods it can buy. Yeah, but, you know, some goods are getting cheaper. So it's much cheaper to buy an iPhone now than it was in 2007 when the iPhones first came out. Like an iPhone XR is probably cheaper in constant dollars than a 2007 iPhone that could barely do anything. One of the first apps they had was you could have a picture of popcorn popping on your screen. And that was really great, but then if you actually downloaded that app, um, Apple um, uh, disabled your iPhone and became an iBrick. So why is an iPhone so much cheaper now if in constant dollars? You still, um, you're buying a well, better like thing. A, like a DVR costs like a thousand dollars when they first came out. So like it's just a change in the face of technology. Yeah, so how do you figure out the goods? Well, you, there are two different types of consumer price indexes. Okay, good. So there's one that's determined, like the base year is a, like, if you're comparing two years, mm -hmm. there's one where the base year is a current year, and there's one where the base year is, like, the original year, so, mm -hmm. like, 1980 versus, like, 2010. Yeah. And then the one that measures from the earlier year tends to overshoot inflation, and then the one from the current year tends to undershoot it. Yeah, but... But the theoretical question we're still asking is, what is it that determines what you said, which is right, is that you look at goods and you see how, how, mu how much $100 can buy of goods. But it's clear that some things are a whole lot cheaper than they were, that, you can, that even in constant dollars, you can buy more iPhones now than you could 10 years ago in constant dollars. So this is this is actually just one more step. Yeah. Well, that's part of the reason why inter-country comparisons are given in so-called purchasing power parity dollars, which you know sort of so like by purchasing power parity dollars, the Chinese economy has surpassed the U.S. economy three years ago. But that means they count, you know, one dollar in China is roughly like almost two dollars, so it doubles the size of their economy. That's because the same dollar goes a lot further in China. Mm -hmm. But I think you know that that raises a very interesting because no amount of dollars could have bought you an iPhone 20 years ago. Yeah. So um, you could say we're infinitely richer than 20 years. I mean, like, if you think, uh, like, you know, if... Yeah, I think it was at the beginning of the 20th century that the average person lived better than Louis XIV, who was, like, the person who lived um, most amazingly in the history of wealth. So Louis XIV, who was king of France in the 17th century, um, lived a life of spectacular luxury and ease, and ease, and the average American at the beginning of the 20th century actually lived a better life than he did. So no matter how much money he had, he couldn't live like a, like a, a person on the mean in purchasing power. And you guys couldn't stand to live the way an average American lived in 1900. You would find it intolerably bad. 
So, but that was better than Louis the Fourteenth. But the simple answer is that you use a basket of goods. That is, it's you don't look at iPhones and say, "Well, iPhones really tell you." What you do is, first of all, you look at essentials. You look at food. You look at how much chicken costs. You look at how much clothing costs. You look at how much beer costs. You look at how much electricity costs. You look at how much heating costs. They're just a whole bunch of things that people really. You you try to get average. You try. You basically try to figure out all the things that are of important utility, and then things that are of less utility but still of utility, and you look at the average costs, and that is what gives you something like the idea of what the value for constant dollars is. Then there's the question of chain CPI, which is another thing that is, is steak costs more than chicken, but is it really worth the extra cost? And if people can switch from steak to chicken, does that mean that the fact that steak is getting more expensive should count as much as its more expensiveness seems to indicate? So these are basic ideas. But the, at any rate, there is this notional idea of what a dollar is worth, which you could call a constant dollar. Um, there's also what it's worth in other currencies where, dollars, where they want dollars and dollars go for less. Did you guys read that article that I sent you about $100 bills being like the second most important export that the US has? So that's kind of interesting because it means that money is being exported as a good. And it's being exported as a good because people want that money because that money goes farther in their economies and goes much farther in their economies because of trust of the US. All right. So all of those things then are part of what Hume and Smith are thinking about. And the basic idea which really Hume gets is that if you inject money into an economy, and this is what economic stimulus is about, and this is what quantitative easing was about when the Federal Reserve did it after the last recession, is that if you put more money into the economy, that will increase demand. And demand will, therefore, be an incentive for people to increase supply. So Hume, looking at the statistics, says that gold itself is worthless, but the possibility of gold made people produce that much more because the money supply went up. So the money supply, did, it, wasn't, it didn't cancel itself out which is what, a, what would happen in a completely static economy where the pie can't get bigger. It didn't cancel itself out, but it was an incentive for more people to make pies. And that incentive then caused the economy to grow. Were you looking skeptical? No. OK. All right. So it was just peripheral skepticalness that I had in the corner of my eye. Yeah. It's, is it what he like describes as like keeping alive a spirit of industry? Yeah. Yeah, good. So Adam Smith was a friend of Hume's, and essentially his work is he thought really, really hard about things that Hume said. Hume was a philosopher, and Hume treated everything in his philosophy, but what he was most interested in, at, he was also a historian. He wrote um, quite an astonishing history of England. Um, but what he was most interested in in his philosophy was 
the mind's relation to the world. In this way, he was, uh, to some extent, like Locke. He was picking up ideas that Locke, who's most important now, one of the two ways he's most important is as a philosopher of mind, as a philosopher of how the mind, the individual's mind relates to the world. And Hume, who's a century after Locke, is thinking about similar issues. But Hume did think about everything. And he influenced a whole lot of people. And among the people he influenced was Adam Smith. They both belonged to what's called the Scottish Enlightenment. They both lived in Edinburgh, Scotland. And Edinburgh, in particular, was the center of intellectual ferment in the British Isles in the 18th century, much, much, much more so than London. And Hume and Smith were um, two of the leaders of that. And they were ultimately responding to a chain of thinkers starting with Mandeville. And um, that chain actually went through, there's, um, through Ireland as well. So there was a guy from Dublin who then moved to Edinburgh whose lectures they went to. And so Hume and Smith are thinking about the same things. And what Smith does in The Wealth of Nations is to write this absolutely classic book on how economies work, where he introduces some of the most basic ideas that exist in thinking about how economies work. And he got some of that from his friend Hume, who was a little bit older than he was. And Hume is also really interested in moral sentiments. So his first book was a book called A Treatise on Human Nature, which is kind of a pun, although he may not have meant it as one, A Treatise on Hume. Oh, and nature as well, a treatise on human and nature, but it's a treatise on human nature. And one of the things that he does is to ask questions like the question that Mandeville doesn't quite ask but answers without seeing that it's a harder question than he realizes, or at least without admitting that it's a harder question than he realizes, which is what is the relationship of selfishness to other human passions. So the anti, the, the completely cynical answer is that all human passions are selfish. That if you hate someone, it's because they are harming you in some way or they are blocking you from getting what you want. And so your response is hatred or resentment. If you love someone, it's because it's what they can give you. Um, first and foremost, perhaps nutrition and protection and aid. That's if you're talking about parents. If you're talking about peers, maybe cooperation and protection against others. That would be the social contract. Maybe sex. And so the basic human passions, love and hate and resentment and so on, all of them to a cynical view seem selfish. And Hume thinks that's completely not true. And he is an amazing counterintuitive thinker. So, for example, he does talk about pride. And what he wants to know is everyone knows pride is bad. It's really bad to go around strutting and being proud of yourself. But what Hume does is he asks, why is, and this is what we were talking about in, in Mandeville, why is pride supposed to be selfish? What makes pride something selfish? And if you don't think about it, it seems obvious because you're putting yourself above others, right? I'm 
the I'm the smartest person in the room. I'm very cool. I'm the smartest person in the room. People should know that about me, that I'm the smartest person in the room. But why is that selfish? Hume's claim is that pride is actually a sign of extreme unselfishness. So how could you make an argument that pride was unselfish? Or does it seem obvious to, does it seem obvious to you that pride is selfish? Yeah, Andrea. I guess you could say it's unselfish because usually when you think of the word selfish, you think that you're taking something away from someone else. And I guess being powerful doesn't really directly do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what, what is it that proud people, let's say that someone is really proud of their looks. So what do they do? Just think of Snow White's um, stepmother. Okay, you take care of yourself, but what else do you do? How much time? Yeah. Um, you spend more uh, to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you spend a whole lot of time in front of the mirror, you work really hard to look your best, you want to be dominating, so it takes a whole lot of work. Um, and what about the schlump who doesn't give a shit? What about, you know, think of, think of Amy um, Clochabar versus Bernie Sanders. So one of them eats salad with a comb, and the other doesn't own a comb, right? You guys all know about this? About her eating salad with a comb? Oh, you don't know about this? Oh, my God. Wasn't that a punishment, though? What? Wasn't that, like, a punishment for... Well, no, she was, she was indicating that she was pissed off, but she also was eating her salad. No, washing the comb was a punishment. So what happened was, when she was a senator in 2008, she's now running for president, so everyone is... Um, this is her version of her emails. Um, she's supposed to treat her staff really badly. And so in 2008, she was running for a plane. She told one of her staff members, grab me a salad so I can eat it on the plane so I can you know, give this talk wherever I'm going. The staff member grabbed a salad but dropped the plastic fork in the airport. So they're on the plane and there's no plastic fork. So she blew up at the staff member um, because how is she going to eat her salad? And the answer is with your fingers, but it had gooey dressing on the it or something. Had no I don't ask me the details. I'm just saying what the New York Times says. I don't think so. I, I think if they had forks, she would have used a fork. I don't, I, okay, well, it's even more self-sacrificing then. In order to show you, it's, it's called cutting off your, your, your comb to spite your mouth or something. In order to show you what a bad staff member you are, I, a senator, am going to do something really disgusting, which is eat my salad with a comb, and it will be your fault. Anyhow, the way the story goes is there was no fork on the plane. And I think it was a private plane, but I'm not sure. The way the story goes is there's no fork on the plane. And she is really angry because she wants to eat this salad. And so she pulls out a comb and eats her salad with a comb, which is, you know, resourceful. And then she made the staff member wash the comb. And that was, and then this was supposed to be typical of the way she treats her staff and why she shouldn't be president because she's a woman. And that, I mean, that's, there is kind of an implication of that. And the idea there is that she, 
use this comb. Some people are grossed out because they think it was a used comb. Other people think maybe it was a new comb. But at any rate, she used this comb, and she ate a salad, and so she had a healthy meal with a salad, with a comb that she carries around with her, and this thing that she carries around with her enables her to look really well put together, which if you saw her in the Kavanaugh hearings, do you remember her in the Kavanaugh hearings? She was the one that Kavanaugh um, said, how much do you drink, Senator? And um, <laughs> and she said, my father was an alcoholic, so I'm very careful about it. So that was her. And then there's Bernie Sanders, who obviously does not own a comb. And so the question is, is she getting more, does she get more of a return from the work that she puts into looking well put together by owning a comb and having it always ready to hand? Does she look, does, does it help her to do the work of looking well put together? Does that help her more than does it give her an advantage over Bernie, who never combs his hair? And that, you know, I meant that as a little bit of a joke, but just in real life, if you have a slob, what's, what's the incentive for being a slob? Easier. Easier, yeah. What's the, yeah. Well, I think that for the um, Bernie, for that particular metaphor, it doesn't really entirely work because... Part of Bernie's See, I knew you were going to be skeptical. I just got it too early. But go on. Just party, part of Bernie Sanders' charm is that he's sort of like... Like Bernie. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's sort of just not really... I don't know, like, he doesn't seem filtered, I guess. Yeah. And the not having very combed hair is part of it, but I think that in our political culture, we wouldn't really accept a woman trying to tap into that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. So. Although in the Bella Abzug in New York might have been somewhere in 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 that place in the nineteen seventies. Um, but somewhere. But anyhow, that I didn't actually mean it as a political thing. You're quite right about that. But what I meant is that in general, you know, Think of, think of who you want as a roommate. No one really wants a slob as a roommate. Um, but even slobs don't want slobs as roommates. But in general, um, some of your friends are slobs and some aren't. And those who are slobs are, have an easier life, right? Don't they? I mean, I try and like shift the incentive a little bit by crapping on my sweet mate for being so messy. Mm-hmm. But yeah. It work. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. So that so that it's easier to be messy and be crapped on than to clean up. No, it's like a negative externality. Nice. No, it's just like you mean she personally. doesn't mind, but I mind. Yeah. So like she doesn't have any incentive to clean it. Right. Okay. So slob slobs are often thought of as slothful. So among the deadly. Seven Deadly Sins, there's pride and there's slothfulness. And you could say that they're the opposite of each other. So that's kind of interesting. That the In Spencer, we only looked at a little bit of Spencer, but in Spencer, in book one of The Fairy Queen, there is a parade of the Seven Deadly Sins, and it occurs in a place called the House of Pride. 
and in the House of Pride, the seven deadly sins, um, the six other deadly sins go marching um, in this parade um, through the House of Pride. And um, do people remember what the seven deadly sins are? My mnemonic is slap egg. S L A P E G G. Because you'll not, you won't forget that. You won't know what it means, but you won't forget it. Slap egg. Sloth, lust, avarice, pride, uh, envy, gluttony, gluttony, and greed. Um, good. Nice. Okay, so sloth and pride seem to go against each other. It's like really hard to meet all seven deadly sins. It's if you're really, really proud, what you are going to do is the opposite of be a glutton or be slothful. Unless you're totally, I mean, the, the, the kinds of things you will put your work into will be different if you are someone who's angry from, an obvious one, if you're angry, then you're not going to be slothful because anger is energizing. If you're slothful and you just want to sleep all the time, you're not really showing that you're angry. If you're proud, you're probably not going to be a glutton. If you're a glutton, you're not going to be that proud. And if you are envious, you may not be proud because pride means I don't need anything besides what I have, whereas envy is it's not fair that you, that you have that and I don't. So the seven deadly sins don't seem, as they say, to harmonize with each other. And that's interesting. That, and it's also morally people will say, well, the fact that they don't harmonize with each other means that you shouldn't think that the fact that you're not slothful means that you're not all bad. It's in fact impossible to be all bad because the sins will interfere with each other. So you can't possibly represent all sins in one person. So are you skeptical of that? No, I was just thinking about like, because Pride, is it always accompanied with vanity? Because I was thinking, could you be proud? But not vain. Okay, well, it's not always accompanied with vanity, but let's call it vanity then, which is in fact what Hume talks about. So if vanity is a sin, one of the questions is, and this is one of the things that Mandeville actually goes on to talk about in the section that we were looking at on Thursday is, can you be vain if you're completely alone? Is vanity a sin that can be solitary? So Mandeville gives the example of the person who's proud that he doesn't take the best piece of the pie. And um, he gets a secret pleasure from not taking the best piece of the pie. So he's alone on a desert island. Can he have that experience of pride? Yeah, there's no one, it's that it's the secret pleasure that gives him the pride. And the secret pleasure is that secretly he's, according to Mandeville, he's motivated by pride, but that he's keeping that a secret because it looks like he's motivated by altruism. That is, that he's proud to be self-effacing. Nietzsche will later say, even the self-despiser people who hate themselves are proud of hating themselves. So that idea that there's a secret motive even in what looks generous or what looks selfless, that there's selfishness underneath it all, that's an idea in Mandeville and an idea in Nietzsche. 
And for Mandible, it's if you're on a desert island, then there's certain things that make no sense. They only make sense in society. But if they only make sense in society, what Hume says is that that means you actually really care about what others think about you, which means, a fortiori, as we put it, that you care about what others think, which means that other people are real to you. If you were the kind of person to whom other people are simply not real, if you were so selfish that you actually didn't believe in the reality of others, and everyone sometimes suspects that they don't believe in the reality of others, but most people do, and it's a good thing. You should believe in the reality of others. That's where sympathy and empathy come from, is believing in the reality of others. Well, one proof that you believe in the reality of others is if you are vain. If you have vanity, it means that you are thinking about what other people think about you. And it may be a kind of self-directed or self-centered belief in the reality of others. But if you really didn't give a shit about other people, you wouldn't be vain. If you really didn't give a shit about other people, you wouldn't be doing the kinds of, you wouldn't be putting the kind of work that people put into to get the respect of others, to overawe others. So if you're a domineering personality, if you get angry at others, any emotional or moral relationship that you have with others, even if it seems negative, is at heart and at its base a proof that you actually care about other people and not only about yourself. And if you cared only about yourself, you wouldn't go through all the work that we do go through to get the respect of others. Not respect, not proper respect. You all know that's where props comes from, right? Did you know that? When you give props to someone, that's short for proper respect. Is that true or is that like? No, that's true. I thought you literally mean like giving props to someone. You mean to hold them up? No, like get, like like to give them like a big foam finger or like something like a. Theater, oh like no a no no like it a, doesn't no, no. If you say props to X for making me see this, it's short for proper respect. So when you give props to someone, it's that's a good kind of respect. But if you if you want the kind of respect where they say of you, we're not worthy, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. It's because you really care about those people who claim they're not worthy. Is kudos the same thing? Kudos is Greek, and it means praise. It's a singular. Here's another thing to learn. So you've learned props, short for proper respect. Kudos is a singular noun. It's not kudos. It's kudos. No one um, actually uses it that way. But kudos is a singular, and it means praise. And it is what is given to the winner of an athletic competition, is they get the kudos. So if you really want to impress someone at some point, but you've got to pick your moment. Don't do this in a job interview because your interviewer won't know this. But you can say, the kudos that I give President Trump is very high. And they'll think, is? And then they'll say, oh, dude, that person is really literate. So that'll be good. In most cases, it won't. Because most people think it's verbal, it's singular. Anyhow, so wanting people's respect by overawing them. 
that is a kind of indication that you actually care about them. And that's Hume's point, that, that all of the things that we dislike in people giving themselves air and airs and strutting around and being mean and being assholes and so on, all of that takes energy on their part and energy that they put into you. If someone goes out of their way to give you the finger, it's because they think you're a real person. And, you know, that's kind of lovely for Hume. You can see... Yeah, but you're personalizing them when you do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like so. the coffee table when I stub my toe on it. Yeah. But then once you, but yeah, but you're personalizing it. Yeah. It's like. It's you, as if the coffee table like tried to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, or did you see, did you guys see that Saturday Night Live, live routine uh, two or three weeks ago? Um in which was Leslie Jones, I think, had just done a um, book, or she's playing someone who just written a book about how to control your husband. <laughs> uh, did you see that one? Yes. And it's basically uh, the husbands are treated like, like naughty dogs. So um, it's um, uh, the women who are, who are describing this talk about how um, they say to their husband, did you forget to take out the garbage? And the husband just kind of goes looks around as though he's not the one being talked to. And um, so the actors were basically, um, Keenan Thompson and other people were, were acting like, like they were dogs who were ashamed. And so the idea of shaming someone, you can't really do that to the coffee table. You can try. Did you get in the way so that I stubbed my toe? And you kind of wish the coffee table would kind of go like that, but it doesn't. And that's too bad. But there are limits to how pissed off you can get at a coffee table. No, there really are. Are you still pissed off at it? So are you going to, like, burn it? <laughs> See, I don't think you would. It would cost would. me money to burn it because MCCO would find me. Uh-huh. Okay. So there's an incentive not to burn it. The coffee table so I guess that's a limit. Yeah. All right. Maybe that's a limit case. At any rate, what Smith is getting out of Hume combined with Mandible is the idea that the person who takes a secret pleasure in being someone, being a man of manners and in doing the right thing by taking the worst piece from the dish is also showing that they actually care about other people. That is, that to regard that as entirely selfish is self-contradictory. If you were entirely selfish, of course you would take the best piece of the dish because why would you care what other people thought about you? Now, obviously, you can say, well, you wouldn't get invited back. So if you take the best piece of the dish, people might not invite you back. On the other hand, the very fact that they're inviting you to begin with means that they're not keeping the entire dish for themselves. Yeah. Also, I think Hume may be like approaching this from like a uniquely like economic perspective because he says that like um, even though like um, the money that is gained when when any quantity of money is like important to a nation like it's confined to the coffers of a few persons who immediately seeks to seek to employ it to, it to advantage. Mm -hmm. Like even though he says like they're 
uh, employing it to their advantage, but yeah. because of uh, their status as like uh, manufacturers and merchants, um, it's like inherently it inherently means that it'll also benefit like other people who are working for them. Right. Yeah. That is as soon as they employ it to advantage. The the important point is they're employing <coughs> it. Yeah. So that's that's really really good. But okay. So Smith then, in talking about utility, um, what does he say about utility? So we've been talking about use value, um, but Smith is really interested in the relationship of utility to pride. Anyone remember how that goes? What kinds of things are people sometimes proud of? All right, well, let's look at the Smith. Do you have it with you? I know we don't have much time, but still. So this is the second paragraph of part four. He says, well, he begins, this is really important, the utility is one of the principal sources of beauty has been observed by everybody who has considered with any attention what constitutes the nature of beauty. So do you, th do you think that's true, that beauty and utility go together? Give an example of something beautiful that doesn't seem to be connected to utility. Okay. Um, so it would be worth considering what Smith would say about that, or what anyone who has the utility view of beauty would say. Perhaps they would say that, th what would the utility of the Mona Lisa be if you thought of beauty as, as being utility? Yeah. Um, both in terms of creating the painting, it could be like calming, like people paint to like meditate, and also like looking at it gives you joy, which... I know, but that sounds circular. In other words, it, to say that looking at it gives you joy is to say that it's beautiful. And yeah. so the, its utility would be its beauty, but that would, that would be a circular argument. So, yeah. Like, do you think it would be fine to say that like, purchasing a painting of that value like, sort of, like, increases your own self-esteem and sort of selfish in a way? That, like when people view that painting, they're going to have an idea, a notion of you. Okay, and Smith is certainly going to say that, that... If you own the Mona Lisa, then you are certainly um, you, you have you have um, something to boast um, about, and it's definitely got boasting value. Um, all right, should we put off the quiz till Thursday? All right, let's do that, and um, we'll talk about Smith and Kant. They'll be on the quiz too, so definitely read the Smith if you haven't read the Kant. But think just about that question of beauty and utility. You'll see that both Smith and Kant talk about it at some length. So the question of beauty and utility. Okay, see you guys on Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, no, it's it's totally great.
All right, get some sleep, you guys, now that you've sprung ahead.